Good morning, everybody. Really good to be with you. Uh, everybody watching online, good to worship with you too. Um, if you've been coming for a while, then you know we have been working through a series in the book of Mark. We've been just following in Jesus' footsteps, stepping into God's story. And today, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, it's way to the right. And just while you're opening there, I also felt, um, you're getting overloaded with it, but I just felt to, to spotlight the U.S. Equip. Um, I, feel, I feel excited about it, and I feel expectant, um, because God is gathering his people together to do something. We're going to worship together, we're going to sit under the word, we're going to encourage each other. And I'm praying that the seeds of revival in Chicago and the seeds of awakening in our nation are going to be watered during this time. So I want you to be there. And I want you to come, like, I want you to come just to, to be there, but I want you to come to be equipped, to be equipped for what God is going to do. And the other thing I want to, uh, the reason I highlighted is because this video, we've been watching this video now for like several months. And since the first time I saw it, there's, there's this line in it that kind of has hit me. And it sticks with me, and it's the line that um, God in his wisdom, the accent is awesome, God in his wisdom has handpicked you and I for such a time as this, for such a region, such a place as this, to be the people who are absolutely obsessed and enamored with Jesus Christ. And that means that, like, you and you and you have been handpicked to be the person in your office or in your class or on your block or maybe in your family who is absolutely obsessed and enamored and amor in love with Jesus Christ. Like, think about that. And if you've been handpicked and if you've been predestined and if you've been appointed, which you have, it's because God has a purpose for you right now where you are. And somebody needs to tell yourself that you've been handpicked. You've been handpicked for the blessing and for the assignment. And you've been handpicked for love. And that is what our passage is going to point us to today. So Mark chapter 12. And we, we actually just need to pray before, before we get into it. God, we are in your presence, God, and that is a big deal. You know all of the stuff that each one of us is coming in with. Help us to lay that down so that we can receive from you. And I pray, especially maybe for anybody who's feeling reluctant, anybody who's feeling apathetic, I pray for the person who has not heard from you in a while. God, you are about to open your mouth in your word, and I pray by the power of your spirit that you accomplish your purposes in each one of us and that your word cuts to the heart. In Jesus' name. Mark chapter 12, we're starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and the them is Jesus and some religious leaders. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment 
greater than these. I want to start today by um, asking you a question. How do you fall in love? <laughs> How do you fall in love? This passage, Jesus is commanding us to, be lo- to love. And so I wanted to know, so I Googled it, obviously. And I Googled it, and the top result, millions of hits, top result is three ways to fall in love. I see some of y'all about to take notes on this part. Three ways to fall in love. The first method, be vulnerable, according to Google. Be vulnerable. Said so things like, identify what defense mechanisms are you putting up? What walls do you have up? You have to lower those. Don't be fake with people. People can see right through that. Don't lie. Just be real. Just be real with people. That's going to help you fall in love. Second way, fall in love, meet new people. I can vouch for this one. If you're going to fall in love, you have to generally meet that person. So meet new people, and basically it's like put yourself out there. Put yourself in a position to find love. Talk to somebody at the grocery store, join a club, try a dating app, anybody. And the third method, build lasting connection. And this one's about, it's good to be Curious. You, you have to enjoy the process of getting to know somebody. Talk about real things, your goals and your plans, and go on adventures together. So be vulnerable, meet people, build lasting connection. This is like search engine optimized, the pinnacle of modern Western wisdom on how you fall in love. And I'm not going to argue with any of that. Like almost all of that I can get behind. But the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, agape love in Mark 12, it is like so much deeper and so much fuller than this picture that the world has given us. And so ultimately, I hope you're taking a lot more notes from God than you are from Google when it comes to love. And the times when I have been most in love with God looked like him meeting me in my sin. I was being the absolute opposite of vulnerable. I was actually running from God and he swooped in and wrapped me up and forgave me. And I don't know how else to say it. Like, I fell in love with God. And another time when I really fell in love with God was actually on the heels of a season when I thought, I might not be a Christian anymore. No person that I talked to or book that I read or worship song I was listening to, nothing was persuading me to be a Christian. And so no matter, no matter how many people I met and no matter how much connection I tried to build, it just was not happening. And then, it, and then it was the Holy Spirit who came and turned my, my heart and my affections toward him. And the times that I've been most in love with God looked like him pouring love into me before I did anything to him. And then that love, it, it really, like, it overflows, overflowed in love for him and for people and for myself. And so the best way that I think to find love is to be found by God. The best way to find love is to be found by God. And many of you might be like, that's some kind of Christianese, like, sounds cool, but, but I hope you bear with me because I hope we see that today. And to see that, we're gonna go back to our text, Mark chapter 12. The context is that Jesus has been doing public ministry now for three years. And he's in the last week of his life, and he knows this. He's two days away from being crucified. And he's in the temple teaching Because even two days before he's dying, he's like, I have to get my father's word out. 
I'm still on mission for my father. And when he's in the temple, a bunch of religious leaders come up to him one after one and they start asking him questions. But they're not um, sincere, curious questions. Jesus, what do you think about this? These are our gotcha questions. They're trying to trap Jesus so that then they can justify killing him. But Jesus handles himself and he handles all these questions. And last of all, a religious leader comes up in in verse 28. He asks, Jesus, which is the most important commandment? And the question was asked with bad motives. And we know this from the context and we know it in Matthew. It says this guy was testing Jesus. So it was asked with bad motives, but it was a legitimate question. Because there were 600 commands in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then there were 1,500 more commands in the the rest of the Jewish literature of the time. So we got like at least 2,100 commands and people like, I can't remember all these. Which is the one I have to remember? And there was debate about it. And some people thought it was the command of circumcision. And some people thought it was about, you have to keep the Sabbath. And some people thought it was sacrificing things to God. And the Jews of the time were actually fighting about this, fighting about what the greatest commandment of their life was. So what better way to put Jesus in a really difficult spot than to, in front of a whole bunch of like serious religious people, be like, Jesus, you tell us what the greatest commandment is. If you've ever been in a situation where you know what, no matter what you say or no matter what you do, somebody's gonna be unhappy, that's where Jesus is right now. But, but when the world thinks it has Jesus up against the wall, Jesus has a way of just like tearing those walls down. And I want to zoom out for a second just so we can see the irony of this situation. A Jewish religious expert, and there, there was no separation between church and state at the time. So this is the equivalent of just this high-powered lawyer. He's testing Jesus on the law. But we know The thing we have to know is that Jesus was actually God. Jesus is God, and that means Jesus wrote the law. (laughs) Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law. The Bible says he's the fulfillment of the law. And so it reminds me, I was thinking, it reminds me of the line in, in the book, it's in the movie too, of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the white witch is trying to trap Aslan. And she says, like, Yo, Aslan, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the laws on which Narnia was built? And Aslan is like, do not cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. I was there when it was written. And that's what Jesus could probably be feeling right now. He's like, you're trying to test me on the law. I wrote the law. And the people who were asking all of these questions to Jesus thought they were going to outsmart him. But it's because they had absolutely no idea who they were talking to. Do we know that our questions, our hardest questions, are not too hard for Jesus? And so when the religious leader asked Jesus, which is the most important commandment, Jesus is not like, I got to go Google that one. I have to go run some surveys. No, he's, he's remembering and not remembering like, oh, I got to go through my list. He's remembering because it is part of his nature. He's looking inside himself. He says, like, the most important one is this. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the call on your life. In John 13, Jesus says that the world is going to know us, is going to know that we're Christians by our love. 
the world is not going to know that we are Christians because of how smart we are. And that is a challenge for me. I really like theology and I want to prove, like, I'm a Christian. Look at how much I know. No. The world is not going to know us by how funny we are or how rich we are or how pretty we are. Some people, you, you, you can kind of know what they're about by maybe the way they dress or the possessions that they value, but not us. The world is not even going to know us because we say that we're Christians. So often, the reputation of Christians is greater than the reality of Christians. How many times have you met a Christian and be like, I thought you were going to be way more like Jesus than you are. We can't let our reputation be greater than our reality. The way people are going to know that we're Christians, the Bible says, is by our love. So that's what we need to dig into. And it's just going to be two parts today. What does it look like to love God and love your neighbor as yourself? And how do we get there? What does it look like and how do we get there? First, what does it look like to love God? You know, in the greatest commandment, Jesus is not making up a new command here. He's referring to a command in the Old Testament, one of those original 600. And in verse 30, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And it's the part called the Shema. Shema, it's a, a Hebrew word. That's the first word of Deuteronomy 6.4. And it means hear. He, listen and obey is what it means. And so let me read for us the Shema. It's going to be on the screen. We need to read for us the Shema because this is what Jesus like actually was thinking about when he said this. This is what he's referring to when he told us to love God. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Or sorry, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up and tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this is exactly where Jesus is getting the first part of the greatest commandment, to love God. But love here... In, this, in the Shema, it's not a love that means romance or attraction the way most of us are made to think about it, where it's very physical and it's very temporary. What's happening here, it means something more like uh, joyful loyalty. That's the way I'm thinking about it. Joyful loyalty. The Shema is saying, and Jesus is saying, that loving God looks like putting him, the one and only God, because the Lord your God is one, putting him above all of the other gods around and it, it means obedience. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. But it's tough for any recovering legalist in here, myself, like, it's not just about obedience. True love, it's a choice to be faithful, and it is also actually like a feeling. It is an experienced emotion deep inside you. And you might say, I understand, Jesus, how you can command me to be obedient. I'm a Christian. I was bought with a price. I'm not my own. I'm under authority. I get that part. But Jesus, how can you command my emotions? But actually, Jesus, God does this all the time. Like all through the Bible, he's like, 
you need to be thankful. I want you to be thankful. I want you to be joyful. I want you to love. And actually being transformed like deep within, being transformed in our actual feelings is a prerequisite to obedience. At John 14, the verse that so many of us quote, like love is just obedience. Sorry, that's what it is. No, it says, if you love me, keep my commands. Meaning, there's love before the obedience comes. Obedience comes out of that transformative, felt experience of God's love. And that's why I think we can describe it as joyful obedience. It's an emotion and it is an act. Back to the Shema, the command of love, of joyful loyalty. It's not some rule just coming out of nowhere. God doesn't throw the rule book at you. The context is that God has just rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And he's brought them into this promised land and he's brought them into freedom because he loves them. And he's saying like, do you wanna flourish? Do you wanna have the shalom life? What it is, is it looks like loving me. It looks like receiving from me and I've handpicked you for that. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And all this is, this is talking about loving God with our entire selves, loving God with all of your energy, loving God with all of your body, the stuff you do with it, the stuff you put into it, the stuff that comes out of it. Love your God with your social media. Love the Lord your God with all your privilege. There's a pastor, um, I like John Mark Comer. He, he sums this up. He says, it means love God with all of your influence. The point is love God with everything you do and think and are. And right now, and I, th- I think always, actually, the whole world is trying to pressure you, pressure you, pressure you away from God's kingdom of love. And so it is so easy for us to give our love to idols, to other loves. We say, God, I'm, I'm gonna love you with everything, all of me, except when I'm with this one group of friends or except when it comes to this one like cultural hot button issue, which it might not be your best for me, but like I'm going that way. But the Shema and the greatest commandment is saying, and some of us need to hear this, saying in effect, your love is not cheap. Your, your love is not cheap. Don't sell out your love. It's saying to don't give your love, don't give your total obedience to any other God, just Jesus. And maybe this was a lot more visible for the Israelites in Deuteronomy because they came into the promised land and they looked up and on top of the hills, there were these poles, Asherah poles, and it's where people went and they worshiped idols. And there were temples all around, people worshiping other gods. And so when God brought them in, he said like, hey, cut those poles down, get rid of those idols. And in the 21st century West, it is, it's no different for us. Maybe a little less visible, although maybe not. And God is saying like, don't, don't bow to those things. Your love is not cheap. Don't give it to these things. God who died to lead you out of slavery saying like, look what I did, choose me. Look how faithful I am. Trust me. Love me. I remember, I remember when I first met my wife, when we were dating, um, I didn't think 
seriously, I did not think anything of taking a 40-minute train ride multiple times a day there and back just to go see her. I spent more energy and more time and more money and more emotional capacity, which was a big deal for me back, in the, back then. I spent more of that on Colleen than I ever thought that I would have. And it was because I was crazy in love with her. And I still am. And, <laughs> and honestly, like, it, it wasn't even a sacrifice to do those things. It was just love. And there are so many Christians who say that we love God we aren't actually willing to do anything. But when you love somebody, you do things. And I'm not saying it's all about doing, but like you do things. And if you love somebody, you go to extremes to be with them. And it's the same with God. Let's just get to the rest of the Shema. Verse six, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Is loving God something that we don't just think it's a good idea, but it actually moves our hearts. Is what you have with God not just a framework for believing, but it is actually a love relationship. That is what God is looking for. Verse seven, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. As a a pretty new father, This challenges me. I want to teach my children that for them to flourish, for the shalom life, it looks like having that love relationship with God. I'm so grateful for folks in this church like Abby, Phil, and Heather, like people who are, so many others, impressing God's love into our kids, into my kids, and into the kids of Anthem Church. That's what God is telling us to do. And verse eight, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I don't know how else to read this except put the love of God on your bodies. Maybe maybe it means a tattoo. Maybe it means some jewelry. Maybe it means some clothes. Write it on your walls. Listen to it on the radio. Read it when you get up in the morning. Talk about it before you, with other people when you, before you go to sleep at night. The point is not that it becomes something external. Look at my cross. The point is not even that every time you look down at it, you fall on your knees, even though that would be awesome. The point is to saturate yourself in an environment of love for God, to surround yourself with the love of God. And all of this, and that is a lot of things, but all of that I think is actually like what Jesus had in mind. This is what he's talking about when he says what it is to love the Lord your God. But Jesus is not done. The lawyer asked for the single greatest commandment, but Jesus gives two because he's not restricted by our predetermined responses. Jesus gives God-sized answers to human-sized questions, and we need to get used to that. And he does it, This second command, Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as yourself, it is the fruit. It is the evidence of the first part of the command. They're they're so deeply connected. 1 John, this is a tough one. 1 John says, if anybody says that they love God but hates their brother, they don't actually even know God. And Jesus is saying something similar to that here. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting one of those commands. And this one's from Leviticus 19, 
We're gonna go read it because this is what Jesus is, has in his mind when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm gonna start in Leviticus 19, 13. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor, woe, or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What is all of that about? What does it look like to love your neighbor? A lot of this, just on a straight reading, it's about doing justice. It's about being fair to people, fair pay, caring for the marginalized. Don't show favoritism to the poor. That might challenge some of us. Don't show favoritism to the rich. That might challenge some others of us. Don't lie or gossip about people. Don't harm anybody. And this one, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. It might seem obvious that if we're going to love people, we can't hate them. But judging by the divisions in our country and even in our churches, like it might not be as obvious as we think it is. Correct your neighbor, point them toward God. Loving your neighbor is not purely, I'm not saying this is not part of it, but it's not just tolerance. It's not just saying like, you'd, whatever makes you feel good, like be true to yourself. Part of loving your neighbor is saying, I care about you. Like I actually care about you and God has something better for you. Don't be about vengeance. Don't be about canceling people. Don't hold on to bitterness or grudges. And then verse 18, that's a lot of don'ts, but it's all building up to, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. And it's so revolutionary, so countercultural to, to live like this. It doesn't fit into neat, like our political or social categories. And it's so connected. You can't love your neighbor without it being rooted in loving God. And you can't love God without it being rooted or without it bearing the fruit of loving your neighbor. And that leads us to, to the last part of the greatest commandment. We kind of sometimes skip over this, or at least I do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't say to love other people more than you. You are called to be sacrificial, but you're not called to let people just run all over you. Jesus calls you, and Jesus, this is crazy, he commands you to love yourself. In fact, if you're having trouble loving your neighbor, it could be a sin issue, it could be pride, and we need to look at that. But a question to ask yourself is, are you actually loving yourself? You cannot love your neighbor well if you are not loving yourself well. And you can't love yourself truly well if you do not receive the true, beautiful, righteous identity that is you from God. You are deeply loved and you are accepted. And if you are a Christian, you are marked as a child of God. And you need to know that to love yourself. And you need to love yourself to love your neighbor. And you need to love your neighbor to love God. And so I was thinking about it this week. There's like a Trinity thing going on here. Christian love is three commands 
but really it's all one command. And so this trinity of distinct yet totally overlapping loves is I think what Jesus is getting at when he says love God with everything you have and are and love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you're thinking, maybe there's some gems in there, like sounds nice, but how am I supposed to do that? Like that kind of love where you would go anywhere and do anything and love your neighbors, that is for like the most radical missionary, maybe pretty borderline stuff. And I'm here to tell you, no, it is not. No, it is not. It is actually for you and you've been handpicked for it. And God does not, God does not handpick you for purposes that he cannot accomplish in you. So how do we get there? How do we get there? How do I make myself love somebody? You know, if we could just make ourselves love, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any divorce. There wouldn't be any war. There wouldn't be loneliness. We would just go to these dials, turn the love up, and we'd be right back in the game. There's this verse, a similar verse in 1 Peter and it tells us to crave pure spiritual milk. And ever since I was a kid, this verse like, is tough for me. How am I supposed to make myself crave something? I would love to crave running so bad. And there's a Slack group. All the guys in the Slack group and the running group, I just apologize. I was in the group because I want to crave it, but I'm so, I want to get in the running group. But I just do not crave it. I'm so sorry. How do I make myself crave something? How do you make yourself love somebody? And the bottom line is you can't, not on your own. The first and most important thing that we need to do to change and grow our love is to ask God to do it. 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. There's an order here. It means that God's love is the thing fueling our love. We need God to resurrect our hearts. We need him to raise us from spiritual death in order to live in his love because a dead thing cannot love anything. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to do it. And it doesn't just apply to your love for God. It also applies to your love for neighbor. It has to be God-powered. Luke 6 says, you might be able to love your family and your friends on your own some of the time. You might even be able to show compassion, which is a form of love, um, to somebody who's worse off than you. You might be able to do that. But Luke 6 is like, so what? What credit is that to you? Anybody can do that. The question is, can you love those who are better off than you without being envious? And can you love those who are different from you, maybe really different, without being judgmental? And can you love the person who actually hates you without holding a grudge? It's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to and it's the kind of love that God shows us. I love this quote. Frederick Buchner, he says that this type of love, when it becomes real in us, that's when it bewilders and conquers the world. This is a love that conquers the world and I've like seen glimpses of that in real life. What we need is not striving or earning love. What we need is receiving. We need God to reveal his love and that just means to reveal himself because God is love. And I hope that that brings all of us some relief 
because then loving God is not just trying harder. And actually, that strategy is just going to make you focus more on yourself because you're always like, am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? And that strategy ends up turning our motivation into guilt rather than love. So it's not try harder, it's let God in. The Holy Spirit has to do a work in us for this to be possible. So the first step to grow in love, ask God. And the second is to really see God for who he is. It sounds so simple. Really see who God for who he is. I think um, maybe we get confused sometimes. I know that I feel confused. Why does it feel hard sometimes to love God? If God is who he says it is, he is, shouldn't it be easy? I think it's because we often fail to see God for who he really is. And this isn't a guilt trip. This is just like a humanity thing. Listen to this from Ephesians 3. Paul writes, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that you would have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp. You need supernatural power to even grasp this, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. This says that we are going to know something that cannot be known, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And the picture here is that Paul, he's actually on his knees and he's desperately praying for these people and I have been praying for you guys this week more than I ever have. He's praying for them to see and to have the power, the supernatural power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ because most of us, most of the time, do not get it. If we really understood and so much, of, I felt like Michelle's word earlier just like was the sermon. Like we could have actually stopped. Sorry for all this other 40 minutes, but <laughs> Michelle actually said all this. If we really understood how deeply God loves us and I'm preaching to myself here, we wouldn't feel so insecure. We wouldn't feel so afraid and we would stop trying to earn God's love and we wouldn't keep falling into the same sin patterns month after month and year after year and we would not hesitate to give more away because the love of God becomes the realest thing to us. And the root problem for most of us is not like the, the manifested sin. It's not the failure. It's not even the feeling. Those are symptoms. Those are symptoms. The root problem is that in our inner being, that's the language Paul uses, in our inner being, we don't, we don't get how much God loves us. So let me just try to tell you that God is deeply, deeply in love with you. And God knew you and he handpicked you before the rest of the world was even a thought, before anything was created. And then he knit you together cell by cell in your mother's womb. And then when you were an enemy of God, when you were in active rebellion, he poured out his love in the form of his own blood to bring, just to bring you back to him. The Bible says, for God so loved the world and the world as a community, but also the world as in like Zeke and Daniel and all of you guys. Sorry, I don't remember your name. I wish, I, that was embarrassing, my bad. But also for you, dude, like also for you. Individuals. Oh no. Um, <laughs> 
God so loved the world as in all of us, as in individuals, that he gave his one and only son. Do you get how much love that is? That he would sacrifice that much and go through that much for you. And then he's not even done. Then he pours out his spirit. Then he's like, I love you so much, I want to live inside of you. I love you so much, I want to make you part of my family. This is insane. I want to love you so much, or I love you so much that I want to spend actual eternity with you. The way we fall in love with God is to allow ourselves to be stunned by that, to be overcome with the fact that Jesus died for you when you had done absolutely nothing to deserve that. 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. His love is lavish, that we should be called children of God. Nothing can change God's love for you, and God's love for you changes everything. And when God's love becomes real to us, then it affects the way we see everything else. It affects the way we see people. When I know how deeply God loves me, I look and I'm like, oh my goodness. The image of God is sitting in front of me right now. Oh my goodness. Jesus died for you. Like how much worth do you have? How much be- can I love you because of that? John 15, 9. I can't, this is beyond comprehension. God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. How loved you are. But I say all that and I also know that nothing I say is going to convince you. Nothing I say is going to persuade you of something that then you can't be persuaded out of. We don't need more information. We need an experience of God's love. And that's why Paul is just praying for people. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And so that's the way we're going to bring it in today. My prayer is that you ask God to overflow you with love. The way that this changes us is not by saying like, oh, I don't know about that message, Griffin, or like, wow, cool message, I'm convicted, and then we go back to our normal routines. That's not how this changes us. The way it changes us is by receiving. It's by experiencing the first love that maybe we forgot or by feeling a love that we never felt before. So uh, actually, if the worship team could come up. We're just going to take a minute, a minute of of quiet or or maybe a little keys. Um, I want us to close our eyes. We don't often do this, but we're just going to sit, close your eyes, maybe get on your knees, maybe get in a posture of receiving. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us respond. Jesus' command of love is not meant to be a heavy burden. The gospel takes burdens off. It doesn't put burdens on. This is meant to be receiving God's love so that you can, I don't, I don't know what it is for you, so that you can what? How does the Holy Spirit want you to respond? Maybe he wants you to stop condemning yourself. Maybe he wants you to leave fear and inadequacy and failures like behind and just move forward in your identity as his beloved child. Maybe he wants you to forgive somebody so that you can actually start loving them. Or maybe he wants you just to return to him, return to your first love. 
So yeah, as, as the team just plays, we're just gonna take a minute, like a full 60 seconds, just to sit in this. It might be stretching, and if you don't know what to do, here's what I want you to do. Right where you are, ask God. God, how are you calling me deeper into love? How are you calling me deeper into love? So we're just gonna sit. Jesus, only 